Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. This week, I sit down with Daniel and Aviv from Kedit. We talk about enterprise adoption of privacy-focused blockchains, real use cases for zero knowledge, and their early standardization efforts with the ZK Proof Initiative. Today, I'm talking to Daniel and Aviv from Kedit a privacy software startup that's based in Tel Aviv. They're focused on building enterprise privacy blockchains and specifically focused on zero-knowledge technologies. So welcome to the show. Hey, Anna. Uh, thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, for sure. Thanks. Okay. As always, we like to kick it off with a quick intro. Uh, Daniel, let's start with you. Where? What's your background? What are you, where are you coming from? What are you doing? Sure. Um, so first, thank you so much for for inviting us to the show. It's very exciting. I hear a lot of your, uh, I listen to a lot of your of your episodes. So I personally uh, kind of started this path uh, back in the bachelor's degree when I did uh, math and physics in uh, Johns Hopkins University. Um, interestingly enough, I never met uh, Matthew Green, uh, who was a professor in cryptography and computer science there. But uh, now, I retroactively, I would have liked to to go and visit him. Oh yeah. Um, and then I came to Israel and I did my master's degree in computer science, specifically in cryptography. Uh, I was advised by Tzvika Brakersky in homomorphic encryption. When I was in Weizmann, I got to know about Bitcoin. A couple of friends uh, suggested I look into it. It's cryptography and it's interesting. And kind of the first thing I did with Bitcoin was I, I hosted a, a group of students with this program at Weizmann called the uh, International Science Summer Institute. And I basically gave them uh, for them to work on like the ECDSA signature uh, scheme for Bitcoin. And we implemented the scheme and we implemented the Pollard row algorithm that kind of breaks the, the scheme on the elliptic curves and so on. And that was a very interesting introduction. And after that, I, I decided to kind of create a student seminar in Weizmann that uh, would focus on blockchain and focus on academic papers in the blockchain field. And so we had like a pretty nice uh, set of, of papers. Back at the time, there were only like 10 different or 15 academic papers, which was like 2015 or something. Mm. Um, actually, Aviv came to present one of his DAG uh, uh, protocols. Uh, and, and this was even a little bit even before Kedit. But um, I presented there the zero cash paper. That was like the first time that you saw. Yeah, to zero knowledge proofs, essentially. Got it. Uh, and I really fell in love from the beginning. I thought this was such a cool protocol uh, and, and I saw the applications. I mean, it was it was really enlightening. And then I started consulting for a couple of companies uh, in Spain and, and other startups. Uh, and at some point, I just started with, with Kedit. Uh, I met John through the seminar in Aviv um, and they just told me to, to join them. Cool. What about you, Aviv? Uh, so I'm I'm uh, split between two roles basically. I'm a professor at the Hebrew University, professor of computer science, and uh, co-founder at Kedit. Uh, I got started. Uh, I guess I was doing my postdoc somewhere in 2010 to 2012 uh, in in the Silicon Valley at Microsoft Research. I was looking for stuff to research, and I, I discovered Bitcoin. And I uh, co-wrote one of the, I think, one of the earlier papers in computer science uh, on Bitcoin. I think it was the third or something when you're looking on 
Google Scholar. And when I uh, got a position at the Hebrew University in Israel, I, I kept researching that. And at some point, my, my, my co-founders basically approached me looking to, to start some company that, you know, they were kind of serial entrepreneurs. They, they ran the um, uh, Israeli Bitcoin exchange. And after that, another company that sold to digital assets holdings. And then they wanted to set, start up Kedit. And they were looking for me as a, you know, as a blockchain expert, but they, they wanted to focus in on, on zero knowledge proofs because they thought it was interesting. And, and there, there seemed to be interesting combinations between the two. So surprisingly, my, my, you know, my background was not in cryptography. I never even took a cryptography course as, as an undergrad or graduate school. So I, I, I ended up diving into to the crypto and I started, instead of starting from the simple stuff, I started, you know, with ZK Snarks. <laughs> so it's a rough introduction to the field. Dove in deep, sounds like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it looked like, uh, you know, everybody calls this moon math and dark magic. And it definitely started out this mm. way. And slowly, slowly, as, as I kind of read backward in time, in some sense, the, the literature and cryptography, you kind of see how this is based on tricks that came before. And, and you can trace it back in some sense to arithmetization of computational problems by Turing and, mm -hmm. you know, and before that. Uh, some of the, um, I think Hilbert's problems for the, for the century were about arithmetization of computation. And so you could see some of that in how uh, SNARKs are built, you know, basically trans translating computation into polynomials and yeah. things like that. Um, so I still don't have a, a formal uh, education in cryptography. I don't write cryptography papers. I'm, I'm still researching things like attacks on, you know, Bitcoins and the economics of Bitcoin and Lightning Network. But then in my role in Kedit, I'm, I'm doing all these, these things with, with zero knowledge, um, cool. which, is, which is really cool. That or the beginning of Kedit, were you, and you were there right from the start, I guess. Yeah, so I was, okay. I was there from the start. We're, so Daniel was actually there as well. I mean, everything started as informal conversations between people who are thinking about starting a company. Uh, and we were kind of scoping out potential partners to join us. And our first idea was, you know, maybe we should accelerate zero-knowledge proofs via hardware. Oh. So that was like our first direction. We thought maybe, you know, maybe that's a good idea. Like the ASICs, <laughs> like for computation. Kind of like, yeah, kind yeah. of like an ASIC for that. I mean, it's, yeah. it's interesting. Uh, we ended up not doing that. You know that right now there's a lot of people who are actually proposing that again. That's interesting that you guys were thinking about that like three years ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and we, we are talking to some, some of these people, uh, by the way, but, but um, we, we decided, you know, it'll be nice to accelerate things, but first probably you need somebody to use them in order to buy your acceleration. Um, we, we thought things like uh, Zcash and so, you know, they, they were, at the time, they were pretty slow, but they weren't too bad. Nobody would, like, uh, Zcash users would not buy an ASIC to, mm -hmm. to cut down time to send money from 40 seconds to, to, to one second. I mean, that they wouldn't do that. We didn't think that was a market. I mean, I remember I remember uh, sitting with Aviv in, in a coffee place in, in a city called Modi'in back, it was like 2016. And we're trying to figure out how to parallelize the, the proof algorithm of the zero-knowledge snark for, uh, I think it was BCTV, so like a follow-up of the Pinocchio paper. Uh, that, that, was, that was a lot of fun until we realized that, you know, okay, maybe... Maybe this path is a bit too early for now. I mean, I wonder though, so that, that's kind of the question. Like, should you, should you be working on making something really, really optimized fast so that it could get adoption or do you need adoption for it to be worthwhile to even build the optimization? 
I don't think we can say quite say chicken and egg, but it's like somewhere mm-hmm. in that metaphor. It's something similar. Cool. But you made a decision then at that point. You decided not to continue on the optimization front or the hardware front. You decided to go for adoption. Yes. So we were seeing all these examples that we can basically approach companies with. We could tell them, you know, this, here's this thing that you thought you couldn't do at all because there's a little bit of magic in, in zero-knowledge proofs, right? You, you prove something about, about the data, you never reveal it, um, and, and that enables things that they thought were previously impossible, but we can say that may affect your bottom line in a, you know, in a way that's very significant. And, and you, you start to get the feeling as you talk to these customers, you know, they, they ask you questions, and some of the questions... Um, that they don't ask you is, you know, uh, is this fast? Is this really fast? Mm. They, they didn't ask us at the time. They wanted to know other things. So we said, okay, maybe acceleration, this is how you make this decision. You don't just decide not to accelerate. You're saying, okay, what's bothering the people I'm trying to sell to? Um, and, and so far, you know, if you tell them we can do it in 40 seconds, the, the, nobody falls off their chairs. Right? They're, they're like, okay, so it takes 40 seconds of compute time. Uh, and they, you know, do the numbers and they say, okay, it's a few cents of, of running time on, on Amazon. So if I buy a machine myself, it will probably be, you know, so and so many cents per proof. Um, and, and we can live with this. Maybe you can make it faster later, but it's, it's okay. Um, they're more interested in how it affects their business and how you integrate into their systems. So there's a whole aspect to being a company that targets enterprise that has to deal with these large ex- pre-existing systems that are, out there running that you want to integrate into, which is which is really hard. It was also the time that uh, that we were seeing kind of a lot of developers and a lot of people trying to build stuff on blockchains because like Ethereum had started a few like half a year before or something like this, and we understood the basic problem of of privacy on blockchain and we knew that zero knowledge could solve it. Uh, even for like a, you know use cases that were not directly related to money or asset transfer, right? So that that's kind of the path that we took, and actually, like our first demo, really, really early on, was this really cool uh, uh, demo on on showing uh, how to have like real time risk on an airplane, hmm. on an aircraft. So it was pretty cool to work on that. What do you call like What do you call the work that you do? You're working with enterprise, but do you have to like spend a lot of time educating them? Are you a consultancy firm on some level? Are you building stuff? How do you actually work with these enterprise customers? Because I can just imagine entering into these conversations, you might be starting kind of at the ground level. So I just picture you must have to build quite a bit of knowledge with those with those potential customers. So so usually we tell it the other way. We, we come to them and we say, you know, let's say you're an insurance company. We have a solution for you that solves a problem for you. And mm-hmm. then when they ask us, you know, how do you do this? You, you know, we, we, we have our, you know, we show the occasional slide of Waldo. Uh, you know, it's in every deck pretty much. Everybody who's in the zero knowledge space uh, has seen the Waldo yeah. example. Has said it at least once. Yep. Yes. <laughs> so we say it many times. Um, and, you know, so you, you, when, you, when you approach a company, it's, it's not, uh, you know, a single meeting. You start by showing some deck to some people they get interested they bring in more technical people these technical people are often you know people working on blockchains working in cryptography then you give them you know deeper a deeper look into stuff you show them specs you show them um you know academic papers you start to talk 
more about the math. Mm-hmm. Some of them actually have experimented with zero knowledge before, so they know what we're talking about. So oh, they cool. said, you know, this is legit, this is hard. So, so our job is actually easy on that. Nobody challenges that aspect too much. There's enough material out there to, to, to show that this is real. And, and the business people don't necessarily need to understand how the cryptography works because if you really think about it, you know, very few people really understand how signatures even work mm-hmm. or, or hash functions and so on. So you don't really, the business use case eventually is, you know, there's something equivalent to a signature that we do on a computer. And it's, you know, this dark mathematical magic that happens somewhere else that somebody else understands. Is Kedit specifically focused on zero knowledge or is it just general privacy? Like, do you also work on other or do you kind of utilize other forms of privacy technology or privacy cryptography? Yeah, so uh, at the beginning, Kedit was focused on zero knowledge proofs. Uh, solely in some sense, building protocols based on zero knowledge proofs. But we've understood, of course, that you know cryptography has a lot to offer, and uh, we definitely have kind of adopted several other primitives. It is to say that even when you build a protocol based on zero knowledge proofs, you are using other cryptography as well, right? It's just commitments and hash functions and uh, Merkle trees and and uh, signatures. Even NPCs, right, we, we, we use in our trusted setup for the zero-knowledge schemes and things like this. So that's kind of from the get-go, but we've also found that we can use uh, other other tools for, for other use cases. Yeah. Are you only, when it comes to the zero-knowledge side of things, are you primarily working with snarks or do you work with like other kinds of zero-knowledge techniques? So, so, so right now I think snarks have you know, established libraries of code that are out there that are tested in the wild. Um, Zcash, uh, you know, went back when they were called Zcash, uh, the company, uh, when they upgraded to Sapling, we were part of the code review for 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 the new version of of their code base. So it's easier to for us to trust this code that's out there. Hmm. Uh, we do keep a, keep tabs on all the latest improvements. Uh, all the all the recent papers with you know getting rid of trusted setup, making it you know uh, incremental, universal, and so on. We are not married to one t- technique or the other. And in fact, w- one thing we're really trying to push is a lot of inter- interoperability between different schemes. Uh, this is something that we're pushing you know in 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 other areas, not just in the company, but you know we, this is an effort that we're leading uh, with others as well. And this kind of leads to the conversation about standards, which is something I want to talk about, but I want to talk about that later. Uh, For now, I kind of want to focus on this work that you'd be doing with the different companies. When it comes Mm -hmm. to enterprise, like, like you just mentioned, zero knowledge research is going really quickly. There's a lot of new papers, new constructions coming out. At what point do you feel like it's, are, are you comfortable with kind of selling this to enterprise like because you have to I guess there you'd have to be quite careful some of this is untested obviously like any work that's done with enterprise needs to be at the highest level possible in terms of security and confidence so what's your how are you judging this and like what would you say is already okay in your book so I would start by saying that indeed we want to use what's kind of most battle tested out there. So for sure, you know, it starts with the security proofs and with the kind of academic peer review. So we look at the papers, we understand the math and the security ourselves. We we have our, our advisors. We actually work with uh, three world-renowned cryptographers who are advising Kedit. 
and they help us also kind of uh, ensure the security of all of our products. And uh, in in some sense, if you look, for example, at Zcash, right, they they deployed the Groth 16 snark. And uh, only after it was deployed, it was uh, understood that partly also it was because, okay, efficiency, but there was also a a bug in the BCTV14 paper about the trusted setup that allowed parties to uh, to subvert the, the soundness of the scheme. You know, this can happen, and this can happen basically in any cryptography. Mm-hmm. That's why we kind of want to have the most assurance by seeing what has been out there the most and what has the most kind of bug bounty or the biggest price on it uh, that people would want to, to try to break. Do you also like internally with the researchers on your team actually like truly go through those breaking scenarios? Is that what like you have to verify not only through looking around at like what other people have said is okay or like watching how long something's been out there in the wild, but rather actually breaking it or trying to break it yourself? Sure, of course. That's uh, I think that's like the uh, basic approach is to always say, in cases of privacy, for example, who should know what mm-hmm. and who shouldn't know what? And then we are careful to document any limitations that we find. Really, the place that we're innovating is is somehow above the zero-knowledge protocols. We're using uh, existing libraries as building blocks, I right? What, whatever we're proving. So there's a lot of protocol development. And then we have to see, you know, this guy saw proof from there. Can he now deduce or link between transactions or between transfers or between pieces of data or not? Um, Occasionally, we find stuff, of course, uh, in protocol design. So we have to be super careful about that. We're always aware of the fact that cryptographic protocols are very, very delicate. We'd be very cocky if, if we didn't think this way. And I think the first step in understanding, in in getting security is being paranoid, right? It's Mm. being sure that you have a mistake somewhere. You just haven't found it yet. (laughs) Do you have to communicate that that way? Like you kind of like, in order, like, I'm just imagining how, I mean, how like the enterprise customer needs to trust and yet be aware. Right. That, that always happens with any cryptographic software. We found, right. We, we, we know of cryptographic bugs in, in random number generators yeah, yeah. that were used to generate keys and so on. You, you know, this is very basic stuff that was done wrong in some minor way that, you know, maybe lay there for years before somebody found it. Yeah. Um, so the right way to do it is to set up ways for people to disclose bugs if they find it, to work with libraries that are open source that everybody looks at all the time and, and, and vets. And part of the stuff we do is at the theoretical level, you know, Daniel and I sit there with others um, and try to analyze our protocols and try to write proofs for them. And, and thinking formally about protocols helps you find holes in them. If you kind of formalize everything, you, you can't mm-hmm. avoid thinking about every little aspect mm-hmm. in some sense. And another thing we do is we, we write tests for code. Eventually, there's a system out there that does this. If it's well-tested, there are a lot of tests, with, uh, a lot of uh, unit tests written for every function. It's, you have higher confidence. You, you can never be sure. You just increase your confidence level. What exactly, you sort of mentioned just now that you build, like you would be building on top of these libraries, but what, what do you build? I'm guessing these are like software products. Are you building like everything for a company or just like a small segment that like interacts with something they already have? That's a great question. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so that depends on the use case. Um, maybe maybe we can start by saying that, um, you know, the, the first kind of 
layer on top of the snark that we built is kind of the application that is going to be uh, where, where the use case is going to take place in some sense, right? Like if you think about uh, the Zcash or Zerocash, what's the use case? Well, transfer of assets, right? And they mm-hmm. built a whole protocol and, and you can see how every single kind of feature that they designed was designed specifically to meet some requirement of the use case, right? In terms of privacy, in terms of uh, anonymity and, and things like this. Um, And so what we did was essentially, uh, we actually throughout kind of the lifetime of Kedit, we've built several of these protocols until we understood that we kind of could uh, look at different components that repeated in these different use cases and build a kind of more modular uh, protocol uh, that, that could sustain several different use cases, right? And that's where we are at now, actually. So you have, you sort of have a... Not really, a, not a, quite a toolkit, but like a, I think one could say like a palette or a bunch of modules that you can link together uh, depending on the use case. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let me give examples for, for stuff, uh, right? If you're, if you're doing proving, so we can, uh, we have capabilities, for example, to parallelize many proofs and launch a lot of provers. So that's, uh, if you're going to an enterprise setting, they're going to want to do maybe a lot of actions. They have a, maybe a data center that they can use. So we can we can scale up the number oh, of provers cool. uh, very automatically, uh, and then you need to manage how the, how they are spun up and what they're proving. Um, we are going to have keys stored securely somewhere in some uh, in some HSM or something like that. So that that's not going to be on the machines that are on the internet. There, there's a firewall somewhere in the organization, so the private data is kept somewhere. And uh, maybe a blockchain node that they would have is open to others to connect to that sits somewhere else. So you, you want to make sure you keep the private data away from things that are open to the internet. Um, other things are monitoring tools. You want to see that every, the system is up and running. You want to see a console that shows that it's working. So there's a lot of stuff that you're building for enterprise that surrounds this, the, the proof system, basically. But these are really important tools for them. And surprisingly, they're very dependent on the properties of the zero knowledge proof specifically and what you can show and where. And, and, and in general, you know, everything is supposed to be private. How do you show people that you know, this, is, this is being maintained and kept? It's, it's, like impo- it's very, impo- it's it's very hard. It's so or challenging. That's so crazy. Yeah. I never thought about that. Like the monitoring tools of zero knowledge have to be trusted to be correct because there's no other way to really check on that sometimes. And like you right. still you're getting kind of like a... I don't know if you like would the are the monitoring tools like deeply embedded into the zero knowledge technology or the zero knowledge proofs themselves or is it still like looking back and trying to identify any error or any problem from the outside So so there's a mix of both really hmm. So when you are uh, let's let's take for example asset transfer so we've built up the asset transfer scenario for enterprise settings so there's a, there's a lot of bells and whistles that you want to add on top of just sending stuff. So think of, I want to manage a lot of wallets, basically holding money. I want to be able to have a function of issuing tokens, right? If it's a stock exchange that want to do a, uh, right? They want to use uh, stocks, they issue them, and then they are traded privately. So somebody has to be able to, 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 to create new stocks and to mint new ones. Um, uh, there are all sorts of events in the lifetime of a, of a stock. You, you can uh, you know, double the number of stocks for everybody, mm-hmm. do a split, 
right? All sorts of things that are different. Maybe um, some of the things you want is if I sent you some stuff, maybe I want a receipt or some acknowledgement that I've actually delivered them, which you know doesn't exist in other private asset transfer. Maybe you want the transfer to only be cooperative. So it's not just a push, like I, I send money in Bitcoin or in Zcash that, um, to an address and they can't stop hmm. the, 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 the incoming, but it has to be cooperative on the recipient's side. So you have a lot of these things. Maybe I want to be able to issue in private, which is not something you do in Zcash. All sorts of features that are interesting and important for, for enterprise use cases that we see. And that's just one, one aspect. Mm -hmm. And then you want to be able to monitor. Monitoring also said, means you know, who has the right to issue. Is that supposed to be private? Is it, can, you, can you be an issuer without everybody else knowing or not? There are a lot of decisions to make there. When you're when you're building up a use case uh, like that. In general, when we when we say issuance, right, like one of the kind of features that we need we need for our products is in some sense being able to issue uh, any kind of of asset in some sense, right? That's what we call issuance. In some sense, we don't have a minor system in our product, right? Because when you talk about enterprise setting, it differs a lot from what you have in like the public blockchains, right? It's Similar to what you would think about between like public blockchain and private blockchain, except that now you need to take care of a lot more kind of functionality and and requirements with zero knowledge. I'm curious about like now that you mentioned that the techno the blockchain technology in these private enterprise systems, are they similar to like proof of authority or POA systems or is it completely a different thing? And like I'm kind of curious how the blockchain part works in these i guess it might maybe also depends but mm -hmm. yeah it, it changes from blockchain system to blockchain system but basically um there were consensus protocols that predate bitcoin by by basically by decades uh it was known how to do consensus protocols in systems that are closed in enterprise settings in these private blockchain settings you know who the players are so you just rely on old style consensus protocols that don't need proof of work as a building block and they as a result, don't have electricity waste and so on. So, you know, but of course, Bitcoin maximalists like having these open systems. But in enterprise settings where you just want to synchronize on data without having a central server, possibly because of political reasons, uh, you could say, right? A, a bunch of banks that group together don't want to give all of their data or control over all the data to just a single server owned by some one entity. If that's hard for them, what they opt for is a consensus protocol running on their on their servers. And there have been continuous improvements in consensus protocols. So you, you could look at Libra, for example. This this is they're basically going to run a consensus protocol. It's been informed by a lot of developments from Bitcoin, but it still is an evolution from consensus protocols that came before. And these internal enterprise consensus mechanisms or setups. Yep. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, like you're. You know, in, in, in some industry that is existing, if you onboard all of these banks onto a blockchain, they, they all need to know that they are all part of the blockchain, right? If they're going to transfer and so on. So there's there needs to be some kind of like public key infrastructure system. And then everything that actually is actionable on the blockchain happens completely private, right? But mm -hmm. at least they know that they exist. So there is some kind of trust mechanism that is embedded in, in their industry that you cannot remove. So you've started to mention a few of the use cases that you actually work on. 
but we haven't really defined them. And by the way, this is really cool to actually see this enterprise level zero knowledge stuff. And it's kind of new for me. Like I know, I know more, I think about like the, the new innovations <laughs> around like, uh, polynomial commitments than necessarily how it's being used by big companies. So I hope you can help me better understand that. What are the use cases that you're seeing primarily emerge? So maybe we should talk about like the big class of use cases that everything falls under. There, there's often the case where you have somebody who's interested in, in, in the day-to-day operation of some asset or in risk of some something that they don't control. And I'm, I'm gonna make that concrete with an example. So Daniel mentioned this case of an airplane, for example, flying, and you wanna, let's say I want to insure this airplane. Like an insurance. An insurance yeah. company. So all these things are really insured. If you're, if you're uh, I don't know, um, Lufthansa has, owns a few airplanes, they, they insure them for, for crashes and for other things. And now, the insurance company would give Lufthansa a discount on on insurance of the airplane if the airplane, for example, is well maintained. If you know, if they knew that the airplane every time it lands, there's a bunch of people looking at it, poking it, and so on, fixing everything that's wrong. Um, on the other, so on the other hand, um, maybe Lufthansa isn't interested in giving re- daily reports about every airplane to some external party. Because this is basically all of their operational data. This is a trade secret for them, or you know, it's very sensitive. On the other hand, they do want this discount. So what do you do? Maybe so. What you could do is, if you could provide as your knowledge proof of the fact that your airplanes are maintained, without giving all the details of exactly where they're flying in the world, right? So this third party who's, that is interested in the aggregate of the data somehow, something that you derive some computation over the data. And doesn't really care about where Lufthansa is flying her, their airplanes. They don't care. They, they're, they're interested in giving discounts. So that could amount to a lot of money. So that, you know, that was one of these use cases that we mm-hmm. started with. But the basic story still makes sense for other use cases where you're interested in stuff, but you don't really want to see all the details. Yeah. The, on, that, on that kind of example, and, and some others that I've heard... Um, the one thing I always wonder is like, you still have somebody who has to check. There is someone verifying the planes, I guess, at an individual location, there'll be like a a technician or some, um, I don't know what they'd be called, but like manager of a bunch of technicians who'd basically say, yes, things have been done correctly and sign off on it. If, if you didn't have a zero knowledge proof to prove it, you'd have to somehow get some other third party like certifier to go around and either check their work. That's the one thing that I think people forget is like, because we're not dealing with pure numbers, it's not like we're adding these things and you're going to find out if it's true or false or above something or under something that's like very mathematical. You're still relying on like an individual to check something. Mm -hmm. So there is still potential failures or like deceit or like not, you know, dishonesty on the individual level, I guess. That like zero knowledge proofs don't check for. Yeah, yeah, that, that's called the Oracle problem in blockchains, right? There's data based on the outside world that you need fed into the system, and then you can do your cryptography on it and check things. But if you think about it from the company's perspective, um, you know, you need collusion between many entities to feed in false information to get some insurance discount. So, of course, if you had a third party running around the world and checking that, 
and you had these people colluding, you'd still be in trouble. You know, that wouldn't solve yeah. it. So, so, so of course there's stuff you cannot do, but if I say, you know, the, the places where I repair my airplanes are not, you know, owned by Lufthansa, that's a different company. Why would they take it on, right? This, this risk, they're actually repairing planes for many different companies. Mm-hmm. Why would they take this risk together with one of them to, to get some discount in insurance? It's, it, they're committing fraud. So of course you need to audit this somehow. But but you you start to put in structures that are harder and harder to circumvent. Mm. Basically, it also sounds like you push the digitization and like the turning it out of the real world into a digital world further and further in. And now you're kind of taking the certifier role out. If if I could uh, kind of generalize this just quickly in terms of use cases and and try to kind of categorize the two different places where we apply zero knowledge proofs. I would say that like on the one hand, you have this uh, use of zero-knowledge proofs that I think is the one we're most familiar with around uh, kind of publishing a proof on a blockchain and having everyone verify that proof to verify the consensus rules on the data that is not shared, right? And in some sense, in this way, we can harness the potential of you know ledger technology, distributed ledgers and blockchains and, and so on in the enterprise world. And the other kind of use cases that we have is whenever we want to like... Um, you know, share insights on data uh, that is privately owned, right? And in this case, uh, you know, people, we live in this era of monetization of data, and 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 now you you want to share a zero knowledge proof, kind of from a peer to peer perspective, right? You want to share this proof with someone specifically who is going to verify uh, that you have this computation on so on your data, right? Whether it's the risk or whether it's uh, some valuation. Um, and, and these are the kind of two use cases, uh, generic mm. use cases that we deal with. But let's dig a little deeper into those use cases, because so far you've given the use case of insurance. Mm-hmm. What's, what's some of the other ones that you're actually seeing emerge? Supply chain management is one. Uh, risk and credit scoring, yeah. basically, is another. Fraud detection. Fraud detection. Would that be like compliance in some way, or does compliance a separate one? Compliance... Um, kind of falls along the all of the use case, really. As soon as you don't share the data or you kind of get proof that you have consent to share the data or some information on the data, that's where you're being compliant with regulation, right? With all these uh, uh, GDPR and PSD2 and, and PCA and so on. Um, but yeah, and, and in within the credit scoring, I think we could also categorize like uh, KYC, collaborate, collaborative KYC in some sense. So we actually, Aviv and I actually have a blog post. One of our blo- first blog posts was this uh, a kind of decentralized uh, credit scoring platform uh, that, that, we, that we thought of. Um, so essentially, uh, if you think about what, how how credit scoring works today, right? If you go to a bank and you're going to ask for a loan uh, or some financing, they're going to ask for your credit score. Now, you have, as an individual, a history of transactions and financial data, right? From your credit card, from your bank, from other loans that you may have taken, from interactions with merchants, maybe you sold things, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, all of this essentially builds your credit score. And what happens is that Let's say in a world, you, in an ideal world, you could just kind of give all of this data to your to to this one bank, right? Because all of the data is not in one specific bank. So let's say you can give all of this data to the bank. Well, the bank can, con- can compute the credit score 
and then be sure that the credit score is is what you what it is right um but then of course this gives away all of your privacy so yeah. you don't want to do that on the other hand you could essentially compute the credit score yourself and then give the credit score to the bank but now the bank lacks trust right so it's kind of this is really the tension you can see where it's going of what zero knowledge proofs solve right the tension between privacy and trust and so today what happens is that you have a third party a third company that is a credit scoring company where you trust them with your privacy and you give them the data and the bank trusts them to get the correct result right this is again um, like a third party certifier model that yeah, has, that exists exactly. across a bunch of different industries, but in this case, in the financial industry, right. got it, or in banking. And uh, and then so now we can actually uh, uh, kind of remove this uh, auditor or this uh, third party uh, credit scoring company and compute the credit score yourself and give the zero knowledge proof to the bank that this was done, right? Mm. And in some sense, there is a tricky part here to consider, which is this idea of garbage in, garbage out, which means basically like, okay, you could have just computed the credit score from some data you have in your own computer, and yeah. but you could have invented the data, right? So if we go like kind of one step even further, now this is kind of where blockchain comes in. In some sense, the, the financial data that you have needs to be committed and published by the people that you interact with in your lifetime, right? And that's how you kind of prevent this issue. Um, and I guess to keep it like really, to make it actually really usable, you'd also make that original part private and then do the credit yeah, yes. scoring based on private data on a yeah. blockchain. Yeah. yeah. Yes. The, the credit the score. So it preserves your privacy and yes. it's out there, but you can still prove facts about it, right? That's cool. the, the, right. the, the right. gist of it. What about this? What about KYC? So essentially, uh, in in a traditional setting, so let's let's put the, put the setting out there. So if you have a, for example, a digital wallet company, right, and the digital wallet company offers the services where they're kind of custodial about whatever assets, um, and now they they want to provide more financial uh, services to their customers, right. And so they go to a third company that is a loan provider, right, and they say, hey, I want to work with you, and I want you to give loans to my customers. So usually what would happen is that the loan provider would ask for a copy of all the data of the customers to in order to validate the KYC, right? Know your customer. And But now there is this kind of setting where the original digital wallet shared this data, a, a copy of the data, and now it lost control over the data of its users because you don't know where it's going to go to, right? This is bad for regulation, but it's also bad for privacy of the users. And so if instead of sharing the data, you, the company, the digital wallet company can actually share a proof of the KYC process for the loan provider, right? To validate the users, they could get the loans without having to share the data. Mm -hmm. I've also heard this idea of like comparing like a whitelist with a user set and then just like having that be some form of KYC that doesn't need like you could do that with a zero knowledge proof and you wouldn't need mm -hmm. like another set of eyes. And yeah. yet it would still be, it wouldn't necessarily be completely private, but it'd be randomized. Like it wouldn't be clear which, which names were on the list or something like that. Right. Um, that was kind of another, yeah. another idea around that, that I've heard. 
Definitely. Yeah, so, so KYC is usually not about whitelist so much as it is about properties of the individual. Like, are you a citizen uh, of the U.S.? If you are a citizen of the U.S., we can't sell you a certain type of asset mm -hmm. because the SEC says no, but we could do something else with you. Right. So th there are all these rules depending on properties, of, uh, right? Or if you have a high risk score, we don't want to give you a loan. Um, did we check your identity well enough? Uh, right. Where do you have a bank account? Is your ID, uh, you know, do you have a, you know, a, pa a U.S. passport? Do you have a credit card? Things like that. But we don't want to give your credit card number out. We don't want to give your photo ID necessarily right so mm. th these are things you want to kept private you won't have kept private what about okay going forward what about this you have two more on the list that you just shared with me which was fraud and supply chain let's do fraud first is it similar so let me try to do fraud uh fraud is a bit different it might uh there, there are different ways to approach it from the protocol side but think of an again an insurance company let's go for an insurance company and uh, i'm taking out insurance on my house and it later burns down and I collect my insurance claim. It could be that I also insured the same house in, under, with a different insurance company. So I double insured it and maybe triple or quadruple insured it. And I'm committing fraud on a, on a large scale. But insurance companies, in order to figure out that I just insured the same house, need to talk to each other. And the thing that they really need to share is their customer lists. You know, here are the people we insured, here are the people we insured. Let's try to find who's there and who's there. They, they don't like doing that. Um, so one, one approach that you could do is I could give you a zero-knowledge proof that there's no record on the blockchain saying I already insured this house, right? If there is an, an identifier for the house that everybody agrees on, for example. Yeah. Um, you can, you there can there tokenize, are other ways to do this cryptographically. You can tokenize right? the claims. You basically claims. tokenize the house. Yeah. Right. You say every house is going to have a single token. It can be insured on the one place. When I give you the token to somebody else, Think about it this way: they are the the ones that have the right that are insuring the house. I cannot give the token again to someone else. Got it. Um, so in the, in but, this case, it is kind of like again list matching, but over but with a zero knowledge proof, so that there's no eyes on the actual lists. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and yeah, it's more like knowing that when I insure you, you didn't appear in someone else's list. Uh, by the fact that you sh you just delivered maybe a, 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 tr a token to me or something like that. Uh, that could be a way to do yeah. it. And, and, okay, and then lastly, there's supply mm -hmm. chain, which yeah. is really well known, actually. Um, but I've, n I've not seen... Hmm, I guess I've heard examples of it, but I've never really heard about them past their announcements. That seems to be okay. like this, this enterprise customer is trying out a supply chain blockchain. Mm -hmm. I've never heard zero knowledge and supply chain, but I've heard trying out blockchain for supply chain. And then we just don't hear any more news. <laughs> yeah. So we are actually I hope working. I'm not offending anyone out there, but that's at least the way it's, it, the news has affected, like hit me. I haven't, I haven't seen that many yeah. like follow-up stories. So, like, so, so maybe I should, I should, I should say something. One of our main theses is that, uh, when you have a blockchain, somebody is trying out blockchain something, something, right? They have a, uh, an inherent problem to what they're doing. Blockchains are really good at replicating data everywhere. That's what they do, basically. That's the functionality. They synchronize data between players. So if you're doing blockchain without the privacy, you're quickly putting all your data on something that gets transmitted to everyone else. So, so Kedit was started kind of realizing 
that nothing in blockchain would work if you're sharing all your private you know, uh, business data with competitors that are on the same platform, right? So these things are doomed to fail if they don't incorporate some aspect of privacy. Mm, I um, totally and- hear you. I mean, I think when in, in a previous episode we did with uh, Lucas from Centrifuge, we also talked about this, like it's come up a few times with this idea that like companies trying to use blockchain can only use them for those things that they're very comfortable being public unless you're imply unless you're including some sort of zero knowledge or privacy technology mm-hmm. in the blockchain itself because yeah. and and if you think about business activity a lot of it is kept private not because of being trying to be deceitful necessarily but because to be transparent in those cases could be like it would be impossible to stay competitive it would disclose certain strategies that like if disclosed would make them again non-competitive so it's not like it's just businesses will look at that and be like I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to share my data on a blockchain because it makes no sense yeah. unless there's this privacy included. Actually, if, if I can take that one one step even further from, from kind of a cryptographer point of view, even if you have zero knowledge proofs, you may still have some of those issues about like strategies and stuff when, when you're looking at like metadata, like transactional metadata. So if if, for example, you're looking at like, Ethereum, why is it so hard to get like actual privacy in Ethereum? Because inherently the Ethereum ecosystem or blockchain does not enable the privacy of, of yeah. the of the participants, right? And it reveals all the transactions. So it reveals who the transaction graph. So who is sending to who, even if what you're sending is sort of hidden in some way, right? Totally. Just, just for the record, there is really good work being done on privacy on Ethereum. Like I didn't, yeah, I don't want to yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, <laughs> undermine um, any project. Yeah. Yeah, but there's leakages in in the networking layer when you're sending transaction messages to Ethereum. You have to use things that are, are private. There's, there's a lot. The, privacy is a hard problem in general. It's very hard. Yeah. Totally. Um. So yeah, back to the supply chain side of things, though, mm-hmm. just to wrap up that last use case. Like, so in the supply chain management examples that I've heard, it has to do with, uh, you know, a number of different parties along the supply chain interacting with one another, not trusting each other, all holding a ledger that showed, you know, each transaction up the, up the chain. Um, is that roughly what you are doing? Is there, is there kind of like different kinds of supply chain that are enabled because of the privacy? So, so, we... so I think there are two main things that are um, that people in supply chain are interested in. One is the multi multi participant, uh, further up the supply chain kind of look. You want to know that your supplier is going to meet his deadlines, for example, in supplying stuff to you, because you have some visibility into their suppliers meeting some deadline. Um, on the way to them, right? So, um, you know, if I'm a camera assembly company, I need bolts from some other company. I, I want to see that he's going to be on, on time. So following the shipment from him to me gives me more and more assurance. Hmm. Um, but then it reveals operational data of this guy that he may not want to show. But maybe what if he could prove to me, you know, it's on some ship that is due to arrive within three months and I'm not going to tell you which ship, right? Or something yeah. like that. So that's where zero knowledge proofs come in there. But really another aspect is just tracking things, right? Even if it's just within your company, you want to track an asset and you have different carriers. You're going to give it to an airplane here, which is going to 
put it through customs there, and that's going to go through to another courier until it gets delivered, right? You have a you have cargo that's worth money. You want to know mm-hmm. where it is. You want everybody to 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 be able to keep track. Uh, you want uh, maybe you're insuring it again. The insurance company is going to say, you know, the, your your plane crashed. How do we know this asset was on the plane, right? And you know, it was not actually left off by the guy before loading it. So you you want some some record of this. Mm. Um, there is usually a document trail that follows shipments. We we and that totally ruins privacy because everybody receiving the shipping can just see who who held it before. Yeah. That's totally yeah. That makes sense. And, and so especially that, like you, uh, th- an issue, sorry, in the luxury goods setting. So like we're actually working with a with an Israeli company called Jiview that is kind of trying to solve this problem uh, with Kedit of how to make sure that you know the courier doesn't actually know what the value that they're carrying is, right? In order not to be incentivized to steal it or things like this. And by yeah. ha- by having this traceability of provenance on the blockchain, you can ensure that they cannot cheat you. Uh, as to you know whether they uh, exchanged it or they they did something with it, right? What what have you actually learned going along this journey of like exploring the enterprise world and supply chains and everything? Like, it sounds like for both of you, you joined Kedit, but before that, you weren't doing you know business development level enterprise stuff. So, <laughs> what's that shift been like? Is it is it cool? Is it frustrating? I'm curious. So just the other just the other day we were uh, at a team meeting with all of Kedit and we were discussing um, uh, a business problem that basically came up and it uh, spins us into new directions from the cryptography. Basically, the business people are saying, you know, it doesn't make sense for the product to do this and that because the customer would never accept it. And for us, that translates back into a, a problem with how we built the protocol. And we have to start thinking creatively to, to redo the whole thing. So it's it's a really interesting thing mm-hmm. to see an actual use case. Usually it brings yeah. up new cryptographic questions very quickly. Cool. So it keeps it interesting. I want to go. So we had sort of mentioned earlier on in this episode, this idea of standards. And actually, I now understand so much better why standards would matter specifically to Kedit, because like we were saying before, you don't want to start implementing things that aren't a little bit more battle tested. And yet some of the new constructions may have properties that would be very desirable. Um, and so tell me a little bit about the standards work that you're doing with ZK Proof. So I guess like, let's just start by saying that like, what, what are standards about, right? Like standards is first about kind of educating as much as like encouraging innovation. Um, but it's also about kind of bringing trust Right in the technology to those that can't really understand the technology, mm-hmm. right? So this this kind of line of truth that snarks hold in the math behind them, we want to kind of grab it all along, you know, from the researchers to the developers to the implementers of the a- applications to the business people um, to tell them, you know, you can use this technology safely, right, without having to understand it essentially. Um, and to get a standard, like what what is a standard in zero knowledge exactly? Like what would there's is there a standardization body? Is there like a pool of experts? Like what what does that mean? We don't call ourselves a standardization body. We are an, an, a kind of community driven effort, an open a, in, a, a, a initiative 
that is aiming to, first of all, kind of set the best practices, right, uh, in the space, right? There is already, right, they say that don't build a standard until you don't see three of the same instances, right, being built. So right now you have more than three of many things, right? So it's time to really start thinking about how these things are going to be used, how people are going to have access to these uh, tools, these, these schemes, and so on, with the focus on interoperability and security. That's kind of like, if you ask anybody in the steering committee, right, they're all uh, researchers and academics, they'll say, yeah, that's like security, please, right? Uh, because there has been instances before where cryptography wasn't exactly secure from other standard bodies. Um, but in some sense, if you want to think kind of a little bit forward, in order to bring a standard, we we are already having conversations and, and interacting with different standard bodies. Like, for example, the, the National Institute of Standards for Technology, NIST, is actually helping us quite a lot to build this reference documentation that we've built with the community in, in ZK Proof. Uh, and this is kind of, first of all, an overview of the of the space and what exists out there, but also kind of recommendations for some best practices. Um, I've yeah. heard, so it's interesting because when it comes to standards and zero knowledge, I've heard people ask for it, but also people be very wary of it. Like saying, oh, it's way too early to try to standardize this stuff. Like mm -hmm. we shouldn't standardize. I'm sure you're hearing sort of similar two-sided feedback on one side, like it's needed. On the other side, it's too early. So how do you kind of like think about that? How are you navigating that? Uh, I, I really want to try and answer that. Perfect. So. So there, 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 there are times to standardize, right? If, if, if there's a like a large incumbent in the field and they want to standardize, usually you can use standards to push everybody else out uh, to make sure that things are done your way and that's it. But really, if we're looking at the field early, it is in some sense early to standardize because there's no clear winner in terms of which scheme to use. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, there's also no large incumbent that has interest uh, we're not married to any of the proof systems ourselves. We just want the best one, uh, right? So, so uh, in some sense, it's early to standardize. In some sense, it's just the right time to get started. Hmm. I, I will say that standardizing zero knowledge is not this thing that you do. Was, you know, it's not a small blob and you're done. Like you would standardize a hash function. This is a candidate hash function. That's it. That's the standard for a few years until we replace it. Because zero-knowledge proofs have so many different aspects to them. How do you do the trusted setup? How do you use the scheme? What are the languages? What are the file formats? You want a lot of interoperability. You want a lot of best practices. It's a much larger area. So we're approaching it a little bit more like standardizing the Internet. The Internet doesn't have a single standard. It has basically RFCs that are grabbing different blobs. This is how you do congestion control in TCP. This is how you do routing, right? There are a lot of RFCs that deal with different things. This is how you encrypt, you know, this is how you do SSH, uh, you know, HTTPS and so on. Um, so the, each one of these small documents can later be replaced and it grabs a small piece off uh, and basically tries to bring us forward into best practices. So one of the things we're pushing is um, interoperability between compiling from higher level languages to proof systems. This is one of the things we've, we've, we've uh, pushed into ZK Proof uh, called ZK Interface, and it's now being implemented by quite a lot of different uh, systems. So we're starting to move towards interoperability. We're now working on 
uh, a standard for benchmarking, basically uh, an agreed upon way to to uh, test Tell, different schemes. Yeah. And just to say, you know, we're not going to say one is better than the other, but one is better in some aspects and the other is better in different aspects. So let's understand the trade-offs, run them on the same machines, use them to solve the same problems and see which one is better on, on mm. some scale. So we're trying to, to reach agreement on that. I think that would be fascinating. With the inter, I mean, the internet and the way it standardized itself, nowadays there's certain people that look back on some standards very critically. Um, is there any, I mean, at the same time, is it like, is that the best system that we actually have? <laughs> like maybe that is the best system to deal with this like growing, moving thing. But yeah, I wondered if you'd thought about that a little bit. Like I hear complaints about certain standards, certain, you know, techniques oh, course, that are used in the, and, and people wish that it wasn't so, but it's so well, it's so widely adopted at this point that to change it would be very, very difficult. Right. So, so, so with the internet, there are cases where we're not so much complaining about the new standards. Uh, it's, you know, the old standards just kind of emerged. People actually wrote uh, protocols before they even imagined that the internet would be this large. Wow. If you talk to people who actually developed things like Ethernet and so on, they, they would tell you, you know, we, we were solving the problem of connecting the office next to us, yeah. to us. We didn't think it would later become a worldwide thing. So we did a hack which later turned out to be horrible on a planet scale in the <laughs> network. Um, and now there are better standards. And as you said, the thing that makes it hard to change is not so much the standard isn't good. It's that the system is already deployed in, in a bad state and there are um, very poor incentives for everybody to change. So people are looking at incremental deployment of new technologies. One example is uh, IPv6. We're, we basically ran out of IP version 4 addresses, and there's a great standard. We can all just switch to it's in our operating systems everywhere, but it's just not activated in most routers. And wow. um, so, so it's more of a deployment issue than a standardization issue. It's that um, when we thought about the system, we didn't imagine the Internet being so large. Hmm. Yeah. I guess it's so early right now in the zero-knowledge space, though, that it's like there's no way to predict, and we do our best. <laughs> yes, we're gonna we're gonna make some of these mistakes, definitely. Yeah. But we have to move, do something to move forward. Yeah, I have I have a little bit of a different take in some sense. It's that, you know, we want to essentially build kind of the uh, the infrastructure for using zero knowledge proofs, right? We're not gonna standardize the zero knowledge proof itself, or maybe not mm -hmm. even like the circuits, right? The Pedersen hash or the specific Merkle tree or things like this. At least not yet because we don't know what's the best, but we want to be ready for whenever this technology is going to be kind of mainstreamed, right? Otherwise, hmm. you're going to find people like doing very weird and bad things. <laughs> um, so, But even in that, in standardizing the way you work with SNARKs or zero-knowledge systems, like, or zero-knowledge proofs, are you not, in a way, coloring the way that they develop? Like, they'd have to be constructed in a way that still works with that other side? Well, yes, there are definitely choices that push the mm -hmm. system in some directions. This is why uh, we went into ZK Proof with a lot of different partners. We're trying to be the, the effort itself is separate from Kedit. We're we're not running it under Kedit. It's it's it has a steering committee with a lot of different members that have uh, different some of them are founders in other companies. Some are you know most are academics. 
Uh, and the effort itself is super inclusive. Everybody uh, gets invited to these things if you're technical and doing zero knowledge. Basically, the, the bar is just you know, understanding zero knowledge enough to, to be participating in, in discussions. Hmm. And so we want to hear everybody's opinion. If every, you know, someone's favorite technique is marginalized, we actually want the, the, that opinion to be heard. Um, and not suppressed because we're at this point where we're not married to a specific system. We, it, it's, it's early enough for us to switch yeah. um, if there's a better way of doing it. Yeah. So, so ZK proof is an effort to standardize your knowledge proofs, right? And we, we are a community driven effort because we want the input from the community because we want to be as inclusive as possible of all the different opinions of all the different experiences and, um, we essentially started as a result of seeing that like zero knowledge proofs were getting traction, that there wasn't enough education out there and that people were starting to really use these things. Right. And that's when it triggered. And when we put together the steering committee, uh, we, we kind of uh, started the whole thing with uh, Shafi Goldwasser and Mutu Venkita Subramanian and Eran Tromer, who's also an advisor of Kedit. And um, we, we looked at the space and said, okay, we need to first bring together everyone who's currently doing this. And that's like kind of the, how the workshop started. We didn't initially think, okay, we're going to have one workshop every year and we're going to discuss standards. We said, okay, let's bring everybody, just talk about it. I don't care what comes out of it, right? And mm-hmm. uh, we, we actually looked at the previous uh, effort that existed from homomorphic encryption that had created these kind of set of documents talking about homomorphic encryption. And we said, let's sit for two days, talk about the security, the implementation, and the applications of zero-knowledge proofs, and just write for two days. And that's actually what we did, and it was really successful. We came up with like 80 pages of, of written material from like diff- from 100 different people or something. Cool. So it's pretty exciting. Um, and yes, and then and then we did another one. We, we're basically now doing uh, an annual uh, workshop yeah. that's going to happen for the third time. We should definitely say this uh, around April. Yeah. If you go to zkproof.org, mm-hmm. uh, there's a there's a link there to request to register for the next event or request an invite. Um, and that event brings together. Uh, we're expecting maybe two three hundred people who are going to come. To talk about zero knowledge standardization, we have different breakouts to talk about different aspects, and we are also bringing in a lot of experts to give talks about uh, new things in the space. So uh, in the past, we've had uh, pretty much everybody you really want to meet in in from academia. We have a lot of representatives from companies who are interested in this showing up, and a lot of people uh, who've been on this podcast. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So your podcast is definitely like a target list for us to invite people. Uh, <laughs> we're collecting lists from everywhere. But, nice. you know, if you're listening to this podcast and we somehow did not invite you and you really want to come, just go into the website yes. and ask. And, and so if you have la- some. Sorry, go for it. Oh, for the last. So at the last CK Proof workshop, um, we learned that we're having a little bit of overlap. <laughs> with the Zero Knowledge Summit, which is something that I do every six months, um, kind of on behalf of this podcast, and it's gotten more and more deep into Zero Knowledge Tech. tech. And so this time around, we are coordinating, which is yeah. good. Um, last yes. time we did it like 
a day apart and I was in SF and you were in Amsterdam, which was a little bit of a mess. But this time you're in London beginning of April or like, I think it's the 4th. Yes. And I'm going to do Berlin on March 31st. And so if somebody comes over from the States, they can actually go to both with a little, there's a little bit of time in between. Um, yeah. And if you're in Europe, then I think you can also go to both very easily. So I hope that this gets a chance. This gives a chance for people to actually experience both events. We're looking forward to that. Yeah. Cool. Um, nice. So is there anything else that you want to share with the audience? Maybe just one, one more small thing, because I guess we were talking about standards. Uh, the whole kind of effort sure. has evolved to a point where now in order to kind of create a standard. So we're defining better the process, but you, anybody can actually submit a paper, a proposal for a standard to be discussed in the workshop so if you submit a proposal you're going to kind of go through a reviewing process we have a review committee and then it's going to be discussed at the workshop and after that they're going to there's there can be like a working group in order to bring this to an actual standard right so if you have a paper that you want to submit then also do that very cool and i guess they should also check out uh, zkproof.org for more info on a lot of these things Yes. Yep. There's uh, info from past events. You can see the documents that we're writing on there. There is a community forum. So this is definitely the place to go. Cool. Well, listen, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Anna. Thank you for, for having us. It was a great, uh, great conversation. Cool. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.